Great. So we've really had all our panelists pretty much agreeing that the UN is indispensable, and I think it's difficult to disagree with that. And as both uh, Jane and Charles have just pointed out, it probably couldn't be invented today, so we, we better keep the one we've got. Um, in fact, the fact that the UN is imperfect has been acknowledged all along. There's that wonderful line from the UN Second Secretary General Dag Hammarskjöld, who said the UN was not created to take mankind to paradise but rather to save humanity from hell. In other words, sometimes the best it can do is to prevent things from getting worse. It can't necessarily wave a magic wand and solve the problems of the planet. And we're seeing that right now here. But before I take questions from the audience, I'll ask for very short answers to one simple question. One of the propositions that's there in the booklet about our panel is that in a world in which sovereignty and sovereign states are becoming less and less relevant because so many things are happening beyond the ken of sovereign states, as Jane also said. The question that comes up is, is the UN founded as it is on sovereign states suffering a fatal fundamental flaw? Do we need to augment the UN with something that tries to bring together the various non-sovereign state entities that are really having a tremendous impact on all our lives? This time I'll just go in order in terms of proxy. Start with Jane and move eastward. So, so, so two quick points. I mean, I, I think this whole notion that sovereignty is weakening is kind of overblown. Sovereignty is not what you say you are. Sovereignty is what we say you are in spite of what you are. So I, I think sovereignty is alive and well, point one. Point two, there's an expectation, I think, that the UN would, would somehow be directive. And as you say, there is no swish and flick here, right? I mean, that it's somehow strategic, centralized, and top-driven global governance. I mean, I can't think of three more useless words in the English language to describe the world in which we live than strategic, centralized, and top-driven. This world is transactional, decentralized, and bottom-driven. And the name of the game is still states. Still states. Okay. Mr. Minister, you have an easy task. Uh, <laughs> <laughs> uh, no, uh, no, why? Um, you asked for a short answer, so my answer is that, uh, uh, of course, I agree. I agree uh, it weakens the sovereignty of the states, and here I would recall the previous uh, remark about being interconnected and interdependent. Uh, but also, on the other hand, we see that sometimes uh, very particular sovereign states can allow themselves to do whatever they want to do. And here we will come to the conversation about the rules that should be established and respected uh, by everyone. Mm -hmm. And what do you do if they don't respect the rules? That's, isn't that always a problem? What do you do if a, if a powerful state doesn't respect the rules you've all agreed to? Uh -huh. uh, so <laughs> now we can speak about the great powers. Historically, what does the gr uh, great power mean? It's, uh, it's not only a power who, has, uh, who, had, uh, uh, who had been victorious in a recent war and, and uh, has gained some advantages, but also, of course, they have, uh, this uh, great power can have the, uh, its own interest, its own economic, political uh, influence, but also it means, and it, it has always uh, mean, meant, uh, responsibility for mm -hmm. others. So if we allow some of the club, some members of the club, to be great powers, we also should stay, uh, well, we, uh, should... should um, uh, make them remember all the time that they have responsibility. 
You speak about the situation in Ukraine. Here, as the Foreign Affairs Minister of Republic of Armenia and an ordinary Armenian, I would recall the audience about the war which took place two years ago in Nagorno-Karabakh, in our region. And can you please say, can you raise hands, how many of you uh, knew about it? How many of you spoke about it? And how many of you demanded from the United Nations to, to act to prevent uh, new ethnic cleansing of Armenians against Armenians in Nagorno-Karabakh? Please raise your hands. I don't see any. Oh, you had one or two there. Yeah, the Armenian delegation. Thank you for the others. There's the answer. And now, uh, please persuade me to speak about the other conflicts. Fair point. Good illustration. Lakshmi. It is a creative destruction moment in so many ways, including on the shifting frontiers and definitions, you know, the shape-shifting frontiers of, of sovereignty that we have been uh, talking about. But that's why I want to really push in on the whole issue of how we should be reinventing the UN, going back to the drawing board Article 108 and 109 of the Charter and address all these issues. Remind us what 108 and 109 tell us. <laughs> no, it is about the review of the Charter. You can convene a conference and the world has to be reimagined. The, the world order has to be reimagined. But we've and tried for 30 years to reform the Security Council. Exactly. What makes you think we can but do now, it? now, now is the, you know, the crisis. Let's not let, let's not uh, let the crisis go to waste. <laughs> right. Let's use it. Mandate review, making it more independent, making it uh, technically more able, because we are now hobbled by many, you know that, by many of these uh, kind of rules, uh, which don't make us the, the centers of excellence that we must be and, and the independence that we must have. So all of that has to be, and UN Security Council has to be expanded and reformed. Um, and that should be, I think, the lesson as well. If I may just add one thing about the, what I feel is um, the way this Russia-Ukraine uh, war and its perceptions are, are moving, this, is, this could be a reprise of the end of history of Francis Fukuyama, mm -hmm. because I think you spoke about the authoritarian and the democracy divide. So are we in that moment, in which case then we need to, uh, you know, come together and reimagine it. Thank you, Lakshmi. Danny. I saw you smiling when Lakshmi's enthusiasm for a review came up. When talking Is that a cynical smile I see there? <laughs> Maybe it's a realistic one. Having been a practitioner at the United Nations, we've had a lot of conversation with the Secretariat people uh, about adapting uh, the United Nations to our times and taking into consideration the limitations uh, that are set by the member states themselves which brings all of us to lower the expectation. I mean, those who thought that the United Nations could be solve peace and security issues, maybe it's visionary, but it didn't happen 70 years. For 70 years, the United Nations uh, knew how to safeguard peace, how to keep peace, 
but not to broker the peace. Mm. Mm. That's a big, big uh, difference, and there is a misinterpretation of not of the role, but of the capabilities of the United Nations to be on the uh, negotiating table of how to make peace between uh, uh, enemies. Uh, this is right on all fronts. This is right in crises that we don't hear about, Mr. Foyer Minister, and you so right, rightly said uh, conflicts in Africa. There are hundreds of conflicts in Africa. They are maybe mentioned in speeches of the United Nations, but not in the activities of the United Nations. This is one. On the other hand, you have crisis, crises that are uh, overexposed at the United Nations without any uh, proportion, only because the member states and their dynamics with the group dynamics in the United Nations bring those to the agenda of the United Nations, uh, uh, forgetting other uh, conflicts. But the United Nations as such is very much aware of the need to reform, to reinvent itself in various aspects. I'm not an advocate of the United Nations, I'm more of a critic of the United Nations. Uh, for various reasons, but I do believe the United, <laughs> you, you, and you know the reasons, <laughs> we do believe, uh, I do believe that it must um, uh, sustain, it must continue to be not as it is. Uh, in a previous session, uh, someone suggested to reboot the United Nations. I feel rebooting the United Nations would bring uh, a new organization more of the same. Uh, but it must continue to be uh, a stage, and there must, it must continue to be a, a, a sitting table for the actors. Uh, we only have to understand the limitations and be with realistic expectations. Understand the limitations. Okay, Charlie, you're the non-practitioner here. Tell us your take on, on this last round. Yeah, I mean, I think that there's a, a dual movement today, Shashi, in which in which sovereignty, traditional sovereignty, is being restored in many respects. States are getting stronger, and that's because they are reacting against globalization. Uh, and you see it most clearly in people like Trump and Le Pen and Kaczynski, but you also see those on the center-left doing the same thing because they are being driven to by domestic politics. So Biden came in wanting to practice a much more liberal immigration policy, but he has had to pull back and raise the country's borders, if you will, in, in part because that's where domestic politics is pushing him. Uh, and so I think we, we're, we're living in a world in which states and state authorities will still be the drivers. Uh, and, and I think one, th one thing that I, that I think we, we miss, and this comes to this, this attribute of the, of, the, of the Security Council as a stage, it's too much of a stage. We don't have a place where on a sustained daily basis we're getting real conversation among the United States and India and Russia and China, and I think we, we need that. Mm -hmm. uh, and might we have been able to avoid the Russian invasion of Ukraine if there had been that sustained dialogue? Maybe. Yeah. Maybe. It certainly wouldn't have hurt. And it just, it's not enough to have Biden get on the phone with Putin every three or four months, or have the G20 or the G7 fly in once every six months to do a scripted 
handshake and issue a communique and leave. That's not enough. We, we really do need to have a place that serves like the Security Council, but is more than a place where people go to give speeches and grandstand. And at the same time, Shashi, there is this movement that Jane referred to that's, that's very much bottom up, right? I mean, if we were going to have a conversation about one of the key issues of our time, which is digital governance, who has to be there? Well, Elon Musk, who just bought Twitter. Why? Because if he's not there, you're going to miss a big piece of, of social media. So states are back, but we have to have at the table other key players because they affect outcomes. Sure, Charlie, but one thing is true. I mean, the Security Council isn't only the member states delivering scripted speeches. There's a lot that goes on in the so-called informal consultations chamber before they actually go on yeah. in front of the TV cameras, and they do talk, frankly, to each other. And that's part of what the UN's all about. But we're running out of time, and I'm sure there are questions in the audience. There are mics, as you know, in the hall. Walk up to the mic, and we will, whoever reaches the mic first can start. Yeah, you just walk up to the mics. Line up the Hello. mics in three places in the hall. Line up, and yeah. whoever is first can start. Quick. I'd like to take four or five questions quickly, but keep them short, please. Go ahead. Tell us who you are and ask your question. This is Ayan. I'm a foreign affairs journalist. Will uh, the rise of right-wing, especially the hyper-nationalism across the developing state, uh, infect United Nations? Okay. That's my question. Hello. Uh, hyper-nationalism. You, you, you're next, young lady. Lydia, I'm SVP for Emerging Tech Insights at Nova4. My question is um, to Elon Musk. Do you think that now people like Elon Musk, billionaires, Jeff Bezos, will need to have their own teams that interact with diplomats, their own protocol teams? That ordinary people should react, we should be able to react to diplomats? I didn't quite hear that perfectly. Um, so, for example, Microsoft has a government team that liaises with government. Um, should now Jeff Bezos and Elon Musk and others, billionaires of this kind that are having an impact on our world, have their own team of diplomats to interact with nation states? Right, interesting. Okay, uh, there's a third mic here. Yes, go ahead. First person at the mic. And then Hello. we'll come back to, yeah. Hello, I'm Arif Nizami from Bangladesh. And Mr. Saru, we have a great fan base in Bangladesh, so it's great to be with you in the session. Uh, so I wanted to ask that we are talking about we need a reform in the UN. And uh, so who is going to make the reform? Because we know we have like big brothers with the veto power who keep you know, providing veto to everything that's good or bad, uh, number one. And Bangladesh is also the largest US peacekeeping you know, uh, I mean, countries sending uh, peacekeepers. So is that any possibility in future of the UN you know, peacekeeping actually like trying to protect uh, different countries not invading each other. So is there any possibility in future? Thank you very much. Okay. Young lady here again. Thank you very much uh, to the panelists and to the moderator, of course. My name is uh, Lynn Kwok and I'm uh, the Shangri-La Dialogue Senior Fellow for Asia-Pacific Security. My question is directed to uh, Professor Charlie Kupchin. Uh, since your article in Foreign Affairs um, with uh, Richard Haas uh, calling for a new concert of powers, we've had the China-Russia joint statement, as well as the war in Ukraine, both of which, in my view, has hardened geopolitical competition um, along ideological lines. Um, how do you think that? Um, how do you think these developments impact on your call for small groups of countries to come together to fix problems across ideological lines? Because you know there seems to be no meeting of the twain. Okay, the gentleman here, and then we'll finally go to that lady there. That'll be the end. Yes, sir. Uh, 
Madalitsu Piri. I'm, I'm uh, based in South Africa. Uh, my question is to all the members of the panel. Please feel free. Uh, I think one of the things that we've underestimated is that uh, the whole organization of the world is a global racial polity, and it's based on uh, unequal power relations that are predicated on, on, on race. And the UN is actually implicated in that project. Um, so I, I just want to, to get a sense of your views. How do we go about building institutions that are post-imperial, that focus on nation building at the very same time and making the world of empire? I think that is the, the, the questions that we need to be asking. We can okay. live in this happy cloud that the world has actually become more wealthier and prosperous, but that's not necessarily true. Uh, and, and, the, and the version of what peace uh, was predicated on building a, a specific world that reflects specific values about certain groups of people and other people are not actually included in that project. Okay, and the final one is a lady there. Uh, Go good ahead. afternoon, everyone. I'm Umar I teach criminology in the University of Dhaka, Bangladesh. I have been researching on Rohingya issues, that's why this question came into my mind while listening to all of you. Uh, since more than one million Rohingya refugees have been living in Bangladeshi camps for the last five years almost, uh, my question is, uh, there are some short-term solutions that are going on, uh, giving them relief, aid, and making them comfortable as being re Rohingya refugees, but they are not supposed to be as refugees. They need to go back to their own country. So my question is that if we uh, look at the formal mechanism like ICJ, ICC, we know that Myanmar is not a state party of ICC, and uh, they think Gambia does not have a legal stand in ICJ. Uh, we know about the Security Council. Again, if we need to look into the informal mechanism like uh, repatriation, reconciliation, reparation, they need to go back to their own country. So except giving them relief aid by UNHCR and other relevant organization and making them comfortable as refugees, what UN can actually play a role for a long-term solution and uh, take them back to their own country? Okay, Thank thanks you. very much. We have barely two minutes left in the, in the official time, so I'm going to ask everyone, we can't answer all these very thoughtful searching questions in the time available, but I'll ask each of our panelists to make a closing comment, and if in the process you can address at least one of the questions that's been raised, it'll be welcome. And I think I'll start at the other end, Charlie, if I may, with you, and work my way down to Jane and myself at the same. So, uh, uh, roughly a minute each, and we really okay. will have to wrap up. Uh, on hyper-nationalism, yeah, I think it's a, it is a worry. I mean, if you look at the, at the number of countries in the world that have tilted in the direction of politics based on ethno-nationalism, including some of it here in India, uh, I, I think it's important to have voices of liberal politics, of pluralism that are out there. That's why I hope and believe that the liberal side of this more bifurcated international system will prosper to push out the message that ethno-nationalism is a dangerous organizing principle for political life. Quick answer on Elon Musk. Yes, they should have, and many of them do have, their own protocol and diplomatic offices. To Lynn's question, you know, it, it, it's much e harder to make the case for a global concert now that Russia has invaded Ukraine uh, and pushed Russia and China together because a concert system assumes 
that there isn't an aggressor state. We now have an aggressor state that is seeking to overturn the territorial status quo. Does that mean that this proposal for these kind of small group systems is out the, out the door? No, but it means that we're going to have to figure out a way to kind of build back or build back better, as President Biden likes to say. But I, I do think it, we need to keep this in the back of our minds as we think about a potential end game in Ukraine. What end game will help us build a post-war working international system? Great. Danny? Uh, yes, on uh, peacekeeping, I'd like to stress, uh, as it is now, uh, peacekeeping is peacekeeping. It's not preventing uh, uh, a war. It's making sure that the result of a peace treaty or any kind of arrangement after a war is kept. And that's a very sensitive point that the United Nations has not crossed. It has not crossed into peace enforcing. It is staying in the field of peace uh, keeping. That's an important point. On nation building, or as it was called at the United Nations, uh, uh, nation, nation th there was a concept developed at the United Nations uh, to... We called it peace building. The peace, questioner called it nation building. Peace, yeah. peace building. Uh, peace building after internal conflict. I remember a United Nations debate mm -hmm. in which the concept was set. All the member states knew exactly what the idea was by the secretariat, by the organization. And you should have heard, I don't know if 193 speeches, but a large diversity of speeches which talked not about what should be done by the community, but how does every country see uh, 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 peace building on its own perspective and interest? And this made sure that the concept of peace building at the United Nations does not fly. And if I'm not mistaken, still it is not flying at the United Nations. And that's one of the limitations and one of the flaws of the United Nations, as we have, I think... This was actually one of Kofi Annan's innovations. It was not from a member state. It was pushed by the Secretariat, and the member states were not entirely sure they liked it. Exactly. There you are. Exactly. And if I may add, this brings me back to the idea or to the suggestion that within the United Nations, uh, um, in the streamline of making uh, uh, decisions of wh how to do and how, what to do and how to do it, I think a bigger role should be given to the secretariat, like in a company, like the developer in a startup, to take Agreement. the idea from the bottom, mm. suggest to the secretariat, and then suggest to the member states what should be done, and then receive the uh, mandate or the laws or the ruling of what should be done. Nowadays, it's not working this way, and much has, is not being done uh, as we sh would expect it to be done. Thank you, Danny. Lakshmi. Just want to, I think many of the questions have been answered, but I would like to give perhaps a last message, because this is our last um, inter intervention. So um, I think what we have to recognize is that the UN has made a major contribution, including in what uh, our colleague from South Africa was saying, in uh, addressing some of the issues of inequality, 
of racism, of development um, in a very sustained manner and at least there has been uh, some addressing of those issues. So we need the United Nations and uh, there is no question of that. But getting to reinvent it, reboot it, restart it, all of that is the biggest challenge, particularly because of this geopolitical, geoeconomic divide, this binary that is emerging. And that's something that we will need to rethink as a global community. Uh, and and it, it is indeed one of the existential uh, dilemmas that we face. Absolutely. Arulat Mirzoyan. Um, well, I'm very sorry. I'm not going to answer any of the questions, okay. although although uh, each of them was being answered. Of course, uh, uh, these were very serious questions. Instead, I would uh, I just remembered that uh, many years ago, when I was not a minister and a diplomat and a politician, uh, but uh, but a researcher at an, uh, at an institution. Um, I was studying the international relations and I was uh, wondering all the time whether everybody is comfortable and okay with the existing international relations system or uh, not, or if not, how can the system be changed? And, and um, uh, by that time I did not have any answer and any idea of the conversation being opened. Now I can say that I'm glad that the conversation is open and the issues are being discussed and very seriously dis discussed. And this means that probably we are not very far from the solutions. That sounds very optimistic. Good to hear that. Jane. <laughs> In every single one of our countries, there are organizations with people who wake up every single day thinking how they can steal your money. There are organizations with people who wake up every single day thinking about how they can kill other people. And the United Nations is an organization where people wake up every single day thinking about how to solve the world's problems. Mm -hmm. It's not perfect by a long shot. It's not perfect by a long shot. And what we've learned, you know, what countries like the United States, for example, recently has learned the hard way, is force can't do all that needs doing, and all that needs doing can't be done alone. And so while there's many opportunities for the United Nations. There are equally many opportunities for nations to unite. And it's about time they started doing so. That's wonderful. I'm going to just offer two closing comments myself. One is that, of course, the United Nations is a mirror of the world. It reflects our agreements and disagreements. It reflects our imperfections as well as our inequalities. And I think for us to expect greater perfection than that is not realistic. But the strong case made for it just now by Jane, by Lakshmi, by others, is, I think, the justification for persisting with it. There was a wonderful old uh, diplomat from the Soviet Union in the early 60s called Yakub Malik, who was an ambassador to the UN. Mm -hmm. And he would love to tell a story uh, whenever he was asked about the, uh, you know, how, how bad the UN was and why it needed to be got rid of. And he said that he'd reminded him, when he heard these critics, of a story of Adam and Eve in the Garden of Eden. He said, Adam found that Eve was becoming a bit indifferent to him. And Adam said to Eve, Eve, is there someone else? You think about that for a minute. It's the same question you can ask about the UN. Is there someone else? Can there be anyone else? Is there any other organization that brings together all the countries of the world in a common forum? There isn't. 
That's the best defense for the UN. Thank you all very much and thank, thank you, you for the wonderful thank panel. Thank you. thank you very much. Thank you for tuning in to Policy Pod, the ORF podcast. Please subscribe to our channel for updates on upcoming episodes.